Hello, and welcome to the New Deal Podcast. With me, your host, Eric Gardner. I've lived in Wisconsin for most of my life. Growing up, I played football. I don't remember a lot of things, but I still remember one. And that's the smell during morning two-a-days. It was a perfect mixture of sweat and the morning manure from the farms. After all, Wisconsin is America's dairy land. Even though my parents weren't farmers, farming was a constant in my life. My parents' subdivision, it was surrounded by farmland. My first job, on a strawberry farm. But a lot of those farms are gone now, converted to subdivisions. Even though I'm from Wisconsin, throughout my life, I think I've maybe met 10 farmers, and one of them works part-time for my father-in-law, who, by the way, lives in Minnesota and runs a funeral home. That's because no one really farms anymore. Despite farming having a huge impact on our lives, today, only about 1.5% of Americans farm. More people probably drive Toyota Camrys. Publications like the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, they've done a great job covering it, but unless you've been paying close attention, you probably didn't know that right now, farms in America are facing an outright crisis. Nationwide, bankruptcy levels are the highest they've been in years. In 1970, there were about 650,000 dairy farms in America. Today, that number is just 40,000. In fact, every day, we lose two dairy farms in Wisconsin to bankruptcy. According to the Wall Street Journal, there will soon be less farms in America than there were after Lewis and Clark. The causes of this decline are numerous, but if you surveyed the experts, two reasons would keep on popping up, consolidation and overproduction. If you want to understand the impact of consolidation, all you have to do is think of the components that make up a farming supply chain. At a high level, there's seed that goes into the ground, there's farm equipment that needs to harvest it, and there's processors who turn that raw good into a finished product. A handful of companies now more or less control each component of the agricultural supply chain, and they use their market power to dominate. For chickens, it's companies like Tyson's and Purdue. For seeds, it's Monsanto. If you ship by rail, there are just four companies to choose from. Coincidentally, that's the same number of railroads on a monopoly board. The second cause, overproduction, it's a lot more nebulous and harder to wrap your head around, even if you're governor of a state with deep dairy roots. So it's an honor to be here today at Lane Creek Dairy Farm and to be with the Bergs. And I want to thank all of you for coming out. Uh, That's Scott Walker. He's the former Republican governor of Wisconsin. He's speaking in 2012 to a group of Wisconsin farmers. Today, really, we wanted to be here uh, for two specific reasons. The first and foremost, for the, uh, the 30 by 20 program, and specifically to announce uh, 43 new grants uh, for 43. Walker's 30 by 20 program used a variety of government incentives to increase the state's dairy production to 30 billion pounds by 2020. The thing is that every business loves government incentives. If you give a business cheap money, they'll respond. And farmers, well, farmers are no different. They reached Walker's goal four years ahead of schedule. The problem with Walker's plan is that the American dairy market is more or less stagnant. People are drinking less milk and they're eating less cheese. But the increased supply, it had to go somewhere. That somewhere, it was always implicitly known to be Canada. So Wisconsin farmers flooded Canada's market. In Canada's market, as you can expect, it complained their dairy industry wasn't okay with this. So in 2016, our neighbors to the north placed large tariffs on American imports. The tariffs made it impossible for Wisconsin dairy farmers to export their goods, and so that milk returned back home to the domestic market. So now we have a situation where the supply of dairy drastically rose, but demand for milk and cheese more or less stayed the same. Anyone who has ever taken an economics course knows what happens next. Dairy prices, they plummeted. 
The increased supply lowered milk prices. Now it's impossible for farmers to recoup production cost. Today, a typical farmer gets about $15 for 100 pounds of raw milk. It costs that same farmer $20 to produce it. So many just quit milking cows. The situation has gotten so bad that the federal government Today's got action is the next vital step toward making America strong. I probably don't need to identify the voice, but this is President Donald Trump. And I want to just add, I wasn't going to do this, but I was in Wisconsin the other day. And I want to end and add by saying that Canada, what they've done to our dairy farm workers is a disgrace. It's a disgrace. After tweeting and making a bunch of statements like that, Trump approved a dairy bailout. Under President Trump's plan, a 55-cow dairy farm is eligible to receive a one-time payment of $725. That's the cost of an average laptop computer. Meanwhile, the Wisconsin Farmers Union estimates that low milk prices have cost that same farm around $40,000. I think what happened to American farmers perfectly encapsulates what's happened to all of America. The institutions that we base our society on are no longer working. Whether it be unsustainable farming, outrageous healthcare costs, or the wealthy faking disabilities and cheating their way into elite universities, our institutions don't seem to be working for the average person anymore. But there was a period in American life where this wasn't common. In fact, there was a period where the U.S. government actively built institutions that worked for individuals. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he created these institutions. FDR's legacy is commonly referred to as the New Deal. He was president for 12 years. The New Deal, it lasted about half of that. Yet the institutions he created functioned so well, they built a generation of prosperity. The New Deal replaced oil lamps with light bulbs. It built enough public highways to cross America over 230 times. It built 43,000 schools. Social security, minimum wage, time and a half overtime, standardized building supplies even a political coalition that controlled Congress until 1996. None of this existed before FDR. All of it happened in just six years. But the thing is, I think shockingly, little is known about the individual New Deal programs themselves, how they worked, how they became law, how they were destroyed. This podcast series, it looks to change that. Each episode will look at a different program. We're going to start with the Agricultural Adjustment Act. It's a program that saved American farming. It features slaughtered pigs, a mob threatening to cut off the penis of a judge, and it turned a lifelong Republican into an icon of progressives across the world. As you probably know, Prior to FDR, America was in the depths of the Great Depression. We've all seen the pictures. We all know the general story. A quarter of all people were unemployed. Life was especially painful for farmers. Unlike today, there were a lot of them. One-fifth of Americans farmed. No modern industry matters today as much as farming mattered in that era. The closest comparison would be if you took every single worker who works in retail and hospitality into one single voting block. That's what farmers meant in the 1920s and 1930s. One of the reasons why things were so painful for American farmers during the Great Depression was that the buildup to it was actually a boom time for American agriculture. This was because of World War I. During World War I, millions of European men went from work to war, and a continent can't feed itself when most of their workers are killing each other and not plowing fields. So Europe looked to America to provide the food they needed. But the great day was coming. 
the day of new causes, new profits, new hope. That audio is from the government documentary, The Plow That Broke the Plains. It describes the mania that overtook American farming in World War I. Someone had to oversee this mania, the planting, harvesting, and processing of millions of pounds of food. That someone was future President Herbert Hoover. An export price floor was created to ensure a steady supply of food. Basically, the U.S. government guaranteed farmers a profit. World War I, it basically meant free money. This free money, it led to a bubble. Land prices skyrocketed. More and more people took out mortgages to buy land. Banks were happy to lend because, well, that's what banks do. They lend. I want to point out here that what America did as a result of World War I was basically what Scott Walker did 100 years later. Both built an agricultural policy that hinged on dumping excess supply abroad. It generated a bubble that destroyed individual farmers when it popped. I guess the key difference is that Hoover hated the policy, and he seemingly agreed to manage it to avoid mass starvation. Well, Walker, I guess you'd have to ask him on why he did it. Both bubbles popped for the same reason. And it's the reason why export dumping, it isn't a long-term viable economic policy for those looking to have good relations with their neighbors. Foreign governments, they want to protect their local industries. In modern times, Canadian farmers didn't want to deal with American competition, so they complained. Canada put up tariffs. After World War I, European soldiers, they became European farmers. European governments looked around and realized that the war-torn land, it couldn't compete with cheap U.S. products. So the European governments, they canceled all the American import deals. Here's how Pulitzer Prize winner Michael Hiltzik described Hoover's reaction in his book, The New Deal. Hoover kept the cancellation secret for fear of provoking a panic. So hog production disastrously continued at nearly three times the pre-war rate. But the evaporation of demand presaged that prices would fall by as much as a third. In August 1920, the land and commodity market duly cracked. Farm income dropped by two-thirds. 60% of all farms mortgaged just to stay afloat. Corn? It was so worthless that farmers burned it to stay warm. Making matters worse, and to me this is the part that's really hard to conceptualize, is that there weren't really any credit markets back then. So when farmers ran out of money, they just left. Many looked for work out west. Others ended up in makeshift shanty towns without electricity or plumbing. They were named, ironically, Hoovervilles, after Herbert Hoover who had become president. Later, FDR was unflinching in his assessment. Agriculture probably suffered more than any other industry from the short-sighted national policies that followed the end of the First World War. Those policies he talked about, both were primarily enacted by the Coolidge and Hoover administrations, both Republicans. And in order to understand the New Deal and the change it brought to the status quo, I need to talk a little bit about Herbert Hoover's legacy, both from his accomplishments and his ideology. From a modern perspective, Herbert Hoover's presidency, it was a catastrophe. This isn't just myself talking. Historians rank presidents on their overall effectiveness. There are about three to four different reputable surveys. For the most part, they're consistent. A guy like Clinton, he's in the teens. James Buchanan, the president that steered America straight into a civil war, he's almost always last. Hoover? 
he's consistently rated in the bottom 15%, which is weird given his reputation before holding office. Hoover came to the office as a humanitarian businessman, a man who would bring business acumen to the affairs of government. He was a big deal. He was kind of a mini Jack Welch of the era, if Jack Welch had managed both engineering and humanitarian projects, like saving Europe from certain starvation. He more or less campaigned on the idea that unfettered capitalism and private enterprise were the solution to most of America's problems. It became common to refer to optimizing a task as Hooverizing. But as president, Hoover seemed to make the wrong choice for every decision. When a group of World War I veterans protested the lack of government financial support, he attacked them with the National Guard. He literally ordered the army to attack a group of veterans camping in a public park. In addition to his bad judgment, Hoover's presidency showcased the failures of a dogmatic free market ideology. When an economic commission he convened recommended unemployment assistance, he called the leader a weak sister and buried the results. He spent all of the 1932 presidential campaign, the one against FDR, speaking about the glories of capitalism while the Great Depression ravaged the countryside. So that meant that the election between Hoover and Roosevelt, it became a referendum on not only Hoover's administration, but the role of government in public life. Here's Hoover speaking at a 1932 campaign event. This campaign is more than a contest between two men. It is more than a contest between two parties. It is a contest between two philosophies of government. Hoover wasn't wrong here. FDR and Hoover had the exact opposite conceptions of the role of government. Hoover believed, as many modern Republicans do, that any large-scale government intervention disincentivizes businesses from investing and creates more unemployment. They believed that it wasn't for Hoover's hands-off approach, the Great Depression would have been worse. Here comes Roosevelt, and he's campaigning on basically the exact opposite. The New Deal was an explicit promise for the government to intervene. We are told by the opposition that we must have a change, that we must have a New Deal. It is not the change that comes from the normal development of national life to which I object or you object, but the proposal to alter the whole foundations of our national life. While Hoover sat there and was campaigning about the status quo, farmers revolted because, you know, people, they're not idiots. America was in an economic depression. Esoteric thoughts on the economy by rich guys, they don't really matter when livelihoods are at stake. How they revolted? That's striking because it's so different than today. At the time, banking was largely localized. Generally speaking, the mortgage for a farm in Lincoln, Nebraska, it was owned by a bank in Lincoln, Nebraska. Today, everything is securitized. That means that a portion of the mortgage may be owned by a bank in Chicago, while the risk associated with the farm's default is held in Germany. Now, I'm not an expert in finance, and I'm sure there are tons of benefits to the modern financial system. But one of the hidden benefits for banks is that there really isn't a specific person to blame when something goes wrong. Everything has been so cut up and traded that by the time something goes wrong, blame, it spread throughout the system. In the 1920s, that wasn't the case. There were two specific groups that were blamed, sheriffs and banks. Banks, because they foreclosed on farmers. Sheriffs, because they did the dirty work. They actually kicked people off of their land. And farmers, they basically declared war on both groups. Here's how they did it. Banks would send sheriffs to foreclose on farms. If the community found out about it beforehand, they'd block the roads with logs and telephone poles. Because you can't serve a foreclosure notice if you can't access the property. When the perpetrators were arrested, they'd be broken out of jail by their friends. Now, if a bank actually did manage to foreclose a farm, 
They then attempt to resell the mortgage at an auction because, right, they want to get some of their money back. Well, this, of course, it ran into trouble. Farmers brought weapons to these auctions and threatened anyone who tried to bid. The original owner would then buy it back for pennies on the dollar. I found an example of a case in Ohio where 1,500 people showed up. A $2,500 farm went for $45.05. In 1933, there were at least 76 of these penny auctions across America. This was the backdrop to the 1932 presidential election. America was seemingly imploding from within. On one side, you had Hoover and the Republicans who believed that the Depression, it was temporary, and an action was key. FDR, he offered a different approach. Our Republican leaders tell us of economic laws, sacred, inviolable, unchangeable, that these laws cause panic, which no one could prevent. But while they prate of economic laws, men and women are starving. We must lay hold of the fact that economic laws are not made by nature. They are made by human beings. FDR wasn't blowing smoke here. As governor of New York, FDR transformed the perception of what government could do in a crisis. In his mind, the state had an obligation to its citizens. It was modest, but as governor, he built one of the nation's first social safety nets. Now that he was campaigning at the national level, he was looking to imagine institutions that work for the average American all across the land. I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. This is more than a political campaign. It is a call to arms. Give me your help not to win votes alone, but to win in this crusade to restore America to its own people. Roosevelt won the 1932 presidential election in a landslide. And if you listen closely to what he's saying, something may stand out. He doesn't really offer any specific ideas. That's one thing that you need to understand about Roosevelt's New Deal. It didn't begin as a coherent policy agenda. Yes, he had a clear vision for the relationship between people and their government. But at the start, he was basically throwing every policy against the wall in hopes of stopping a revolution into fascism. Another key point here is that Democrats, they weren't a united force throughout the New Deal. Just like today, the party had many different factions, each with different interests and motivations. On one side, you had financer Bernard Baruch. He more or less represented the corporate side of the party. On the other side, you had a guy like FDR's own vice president, John Garner, who had a failed presidential campaign based on the idea of, and I quote, America first. That probably sounds familiar, and it's familiar for all the wrong reasons. Given the state of American agriculture, the massive defaults, penny auctions that I just described, now that he was president, who FDR chose as secretary of agriculture was the top of his to-do list. The secretary would be in charge of developing and implementing the overall policy to save farms. There were about four different policy options to choose from. Number one was export dumping. This was more or less the Scott Walker and World War I policy that I described earlier. It led to disaster. Surprisingly, even though it was briefly implemented by, it wasn't championed by Hoover. In fact, Hoover despised it as an overall agricultural policy. It was mostly championed by the well-capitalized interest that is, food processors and labor unions, they had a lot to gain if commodity prices were low and work was plentiful. 
a guy by the name of George Peake, who becomes important in a little bit, was a big champion of the policy. Number two was government-sponsored marketing campaigns to increase consumer demand. This was Hoover's preferred solution. It did nothing to address supply and was more or less meaningless in practice. The third option was tariffs. Except America. Especially Republican administrations. They already used a lot of tariffs, and they weren't really successful within agriculture. All three of these policies are what I'd call the mainstream position. The fourth policy was kind of on the fringe. But remember, America was teetering towards revolution. FDR was interested in any and all policies that could help. This policy was advocated by our story's hero, and here's how it was later described by FDR. Unfortunately, the audio wasn't recorded. Quote, We came to the third plan, a plan for the adjustment of totals in our major crops, so that from year to year, production and consumption would be kept in reasonable balance with each other, to the end that reasonable prices would be paid to farmers for their crops, and unwieldy surpluses would not depress our markets and upset the balance. End quote. The hero, and the largest proponent of the policy, was a guy by the name of Henry A. Wallace. Basically, the government would limit production by paying farmers not to grow crops. A restricted supply would mean higher prices for farmers. If the government managed it correctly, prices for the consumers, they wouldn't rise by too much, and farmers could pay their mortgage while everyone else could still afford food. Here's how Wallace was introduced by the MC at a 1939 speech. First, as a present representative of a noted family associated for generations with the science of agriculture and the son of Henry Cantwell Wallace, Secretary of Agriculture under President Harding. Secondly, quite properly in his own right, as the very able incumbent of that high office, the Honorable Henry A. Wallace. Henry A. Wallace is one of those people who are uniquely American, like Mark Twain, Ben Franklin, or even Donald Trump. Born into a prominent farming family, Wallace was equal parts scientist and businessman. Here's just a handful of facts about him. If you had eggs this morning, there's a 44% chance that they came from a chicken Wallace developed. Think about that for a moment. Almost half of the eggs that the world eats can be traced to the work of one man. He was born and raised in Iowa, but he was obsessed with non-Christian religions. He was one of the first to use advanced statistics to calculate predicted farm yields. His views on race were progressive by today's standards. He didn't drink. He walked everywhere, even when he eventually became vice president. Those eggs that I just brought up? He turned that technology into a company that later sold for $10 billion. He built the company in typical Wallace fashion. He gave the seeds away. He'd have farmers plant one field with his seed and another field with the old seeds. They'd then pay him a percentage of the higher yield. The business model that he developed is just so unique, especially back then. So right now you have companies migrating from products to services. Adobe was the big one. It used to be that you'd buy Photoshop or any other Adobe products and you'd own it. Now you buy a monthly subscription. Companies like this because it's reoccurring revenue. Wallace developed a reoccurring revenue model in the 1920s with plant seeds. Now is a good time to point out that the hero of our story, Henry A. Wallace, he was a Republican. FDR wasn't particularly interested in political affiliations. He liked the simplicity of Wallace's plan, so FDR chose Wallace as his Secretary of Agriculture. Bernard Baruch, the guy who serves as kind of the connection to the corporate side of the party, he desperately wanted FDR to select his friend George Peake. But FDR didn't trust Baruch. He trusted Wallace. He trusted Wallace because Rexford Tugwell trusted Wallace. Tugwell was a professor of economics at Columbia. His specialty was economic planning. Most importantly, he was part of FDR's Brain Trust. The Brain's Trust was exactly what it sounds like. It was a group of mostly men who FDR trusted. They informally advised FDR before he was president. 
and now that he had power, they took on formal roles. FDR appointed him to work under Wallace. I think the reason for this is that Tugwell and Wallace had what you would call an inclusive approach to economics. By that I mean, unemployment to them wasn't just a result of taxes or individual choices. To them, individual outcomes were the direct results of institutions put in place by political choices. Both of them thought that after a decade of hands-off policy by the government, specifically the Republican side, it was time for the government to get involved and get the country out of a depression. Tugwell became enamored with Wallace and recommended him to FDR. Within a few years, outside of FDR, Wallace became the face of the New Deal. He had transformed the U.S. Department of Agriculture into one of the most innovative organizations on the face of the planet. In modern times, I think you would view it as an organization with the scale of Amazon, but the mission of the Peace Corps. We'll get into some of the specifics in later episodes, but here's a quick example. Norman Borog is famous in a lot of circles, particularly those that lean towards the right. He's held up as an example of the power of technology over nature. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for the development of a hybrid rice that is credited with saving hundreds of millions of people in the developing world. After he won, he credited Henry A. Wallace. But before they could go about revolutionizing the world's agricultural system, they had to pass legislation that would save farmers from poverty. Crop prices had reached record lows. In 1919, cotton, it cost 35 pounds. Now, it sold for six. In one of his first presidential speeches, FDR outlined how Wallace's domestic allotment plan would save American farming. The farm relief bill seeks by the use of several methods, alone or together, to bring about an increased return to farmers for their major farm products, seeking at the same time to prevent in the days to come disastrous overproduction, the kind of overproduction that so often in the past has kept farm commodity prices far below a reasonable return. It's not super clear in that speech, because FDR didn't want to get into the weeds on national radio, but basically, the method he talked about was that the government would pay farmers not to grow crops. Less crops on the market would mean greater income for the farmers. The money for the farmers? They'd be paid for by food processors, the companies that turned wheat into bread and animals into sausage. They would be charged a processing tax. To understand why the program was funded this way, you have to understand the ideological underpinnings of the New Deal. Earlier. I talked about FDR having a clear ideology around the state and its citizens. One of the parts of this ideology was freedom. FDR believed that if something held control over an industry, market, or even society, no one in that industry, market, or society could be free, because they were ultimately being controlled by an outside interest. At its core, the New Deal was an attack on this power, that is, concentrated power. Roosevelt and his allies believed that concentrated power, it led to fascism. For agriculture, Processors were and still are that power. Today, Wisconsin dairy farmers are dominated by milk processors. In 1972, the top four processors controlled about 17% of the U.S. market. This was a direct result of FDR's institutions. Today, those institutions have been weakened, and the top two processors control about 60% of the market. The situation is even more dire in the beef industry. In 1977, the top four beef processors controlled 25% of the market. Today, that number is 85%. You may be wondering, well, what does that really matter? Who cares who controls the market? Less processors means that everyone involved in farming has less freedom. Here's how. 30 years ago, if a dairy processor gave a farmer a low quote, say 25 bucks for 100 pounds of milk, the dairy farmer, they could just shop around. A processor down the street, they may offer $30, and the farmer will go with them. 
and over time, it will force the original processor to raise their price. Now, there is no competitor, so the dominant processor simply sets the rate. The farmer, it has to take whatever they can get. This consolidation means that almost every component in the supply chain is stuck with the price the dominant player decides, whether it be for the raw material, labor, or finished goods. There's no freedom. FDR and Wallace decided that they would ensure that freedom by reigning in the processor's concentrated power. So the bill immediately passed the Democratic House of Representatives, but it stalled in the Senate. Three groups held it up. You had the Hoover Ring of the Republican Party, food processors, and labor interests. The Republican and labor opposition was expected. The Hoover Ring of the Republican Party viewed anything FDR tried to do as nationalizing an industry. They thought it was communism. Labor opposed almost anything that could potentially put their members out of work. But the processor opposition, led by Baruch and Peek, it revealed the tension within the Democratic Party. They represented the concentrated power in the industry. In concentrated power, it stood to make a tremendous amount of money if the U.S. adopted a policy to dump excess supply abroad, even if that same policy damaged the farmers. So there was a stalemate. They waited. All sides lobbied FDR. Crops went into the ground like usual. But history is weird. Huge things happen because of random events. China escaped a Mongol invasion because a tsunami wiped out an invading fleet. That happened twice. And we'll never know how FDR would have handled one of his first major negotiations of the New Deal. And that's because of Iowa farmers. At that time, Iowa was spiraling towards revolution. To them, petty auctions were child's play. Farm foreclosures had gotten so bad that the state, it actually banned them. It was illegal to foreclose on a farm in Iowa even if they were hundreds of days late on a payment. This law was, of course, challenged by banks, so it went to trial. During the trial, 600 armed men kidnapped the judge. They threw him into a car. They drove him to the edge of town. There, they threatened to cut off his penis if he struck down the law. Farmers, they clearly weren't messing around. This news spread across the country. Suddenly, FDR's bill, it wasn't communism. It was a compromise to avoid revolution. In May of 1933, the Agricultural Adjustment Act became law. But that's just the first part of this story. The last part here, it's really about the administration. Because who you select as an administrator for a government program, it's how you govern. Despite their ideological differences, FDR appointed George Peake to administer the program. FDR didn't choose Peake for any administrative skill. He did so for political reasons. He wanted to placate Baruch. Remember, Bruch was the Democratic power broker, and Peak was his hand-picked guy. Both of them had financial interest in increasing overall U.S. production, the exact inverse of what this law set out to do. It turned out to be one of the worst decisions of FDR's early tenure. Simply put, Peak despised the Agricultural Adjustment Act. He had no interest in enacting the allotment plan. Here's how he described it in his memoir. Fanatic-like, socialist in interpretation a means of buying the farmer's birthright, to break down the whole individualistic system of the country. It begs the question, why did he agree to run it? Well, I don't know, and I don't think anyone does. He claimed that he didn't understand that that's what they were implementing, which seems ridiculous since that's all the debate was about. Once he was appointed to run it, Peake spent basically every hour working to sabotage it. His plan was mostly bureaucratic. See, the AAA was located in the U.S. Department of Agriculture. If it became an independent agency, he would report only to FDR, who was a politician, 
not someone like Wallace, who was evangelical about it. FDR, for his part, he rejected this maneuver. He said, nope, Peak, it's still going to be under the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So Peak still reported to Wallace. Next, he tried to pressure Wallace into assigning him all program authority. He did that the day the bill became law. It failed. So Wallace started some of his own bureaucratic fighting. He appointed an allotment loyalist to serve as the AAA's chief lawyer. Peak tried to get him fired. Finally, Peak hired his own counsel, paying for it out of his own pocket. Then he did something revolutionary. Peak just decided to enact a plan that was almost the opposite of what the democratically elected president and his Senate-confirmed secretary wanted. Here's how it happened. It all happened over the course of a weekend. Wallace left Washington to attend a strategy session with FDR. With Wallace out of the office, Peak announced a $500,000 plan to dump excess U.S. butter into the European market. With this, Tugwell bolted into action. He started by leaking the story to sympathetic journalists, and it created a wall of PR and institutional muscle to combat the coup. The coup ended when Tugwell gave FDR an ultimatum. Either Peak gets fired, or Tugwell and Wallace leave. A few days later, Peak offered his resignation. Wallace accepted it, but the damage was done. The establishment knew that the progressive wing of the party was vulnerable. But that, that will come in a later podcast. With the infighting done, Wallace's reformed USDA crunched the allocation numbers. To save American farming, they had to figure out how much the government needed to pay farmers not to grow crops. Wheat? Well, that would be easy. America lucked out. It was a bad crop anyway, so they wouldn't have to pay much. Cotton? That would be harder. According to the calculations, cotton farmers would have to destroy almost a quarter of their crop. That's about 10 million acres. Pigs? Well, pigs would be harder. Because when you think about it, pigs have a few years lag. They become piglets, then pork chops. In action, combined with the legislative delay, meant that there was nothing they could do about the current year's crop surplus. To save American agriculture, the government would have to slaughter 6 million piglets and 200,000 pregnant sows before they entered the market. They'd then have to recruit 20,000 volunteers to sign up over 1 million farmers into the program. They'd have a few months to do it. Wallace drafted the order, and FDR signed it. As you can imagine, burning millions of acres of good cotton and slaughtering over 6 million healthy animals during a depression is bound to cause some controversy. Government PR agents asked Wallace if he wanted to do so in secret. The way he responded, I think it more or less sums up who Wallace was as a person. He was clear, direct, and righteous with anger at all the right people. When asked, No, he said, we must clear the wreckages before we can rebuild. Rub the noses in the facts. So the government published the slaughter. Most importantly, they published that all of the produce would be donated to local food pantries. Over time, the plan worked. In 1935, farm income was more than 50% higher than the Hoover administration. Farmers, they weren't rich, but society wasn't being upended. Processors, they weren't really hurt by the actions, but they used the government tax as a reason to raise prices. Here's Wallace describing the program in 1939. The National Farm Program is the American farmer's answer to the thunderings of the dictators. This program is Jeffersonian democracy adapted to the needs of today. What the in just three years, the crop allotment plan survived an intra-party coup and saved American agriculture. It was then ruled unconstitutional. When you look at the ruling in hindsight, 
it seems even doubly insane when you learn the story about how it happened. Essentially, there was a wealthy Republican activist who hated the New Deal because, well, he was a wealthy Republican activist. He also happened to own a sausage casing firm, and he didn't want to pay the processing excise tax. So he found a lawyer who happened to be a former senator. That lawyer, the former senator, also happened to be the mentor of the Supreme Court's swing vote. Here's how Wallace later described the ruling. But again, the farmers lost out when the Supreme Court in 1936 told them that agriculture was only a local matter. Once more, they renewed their struggle. They got the when FDR heard, according to legend, he just smiled. The fight was on. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, sharing and reviewing it on whatever platform you listen to is the best way to help. I would also love your feedback. What worked, what didn't, if you liked it, if you hated it. The easiest way is probably through Twitter. You can find me at, at Eric Gardner zero. That's the number zero. The New Deal Podcast is a pretty fact-heavy project. The website, www.newdealpodcast.com, it has the full source list. But I want to make sure that I'm crediting the major works that I've built upon here. If you're interested in learning more about the modern dairy farm crisis, check out the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, specifically reporter Rick Barrett, who's done most of the major reporting for their series, Dairy Crisis. If the market concentration aspect of the issue seemed interesting, check out Food and Power by Open Markets. If you want to dive into the overall New Deal, a good place to start is a book called The New Deal by Michael Hiltzik. Most of the specifics on the Agricultural Adjustment Act are from a massive Henry Wallace biography titled American Dream by John C. Culver and John Hyde. The bulk of the historical audio for this episode, it came from two places, the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum at Marist University and the Vincent Voice Library at Michigan State. The early clip of Trump, that's from C-SPAN. Brandon Monty, a Chicago sound-based designer and engineer, he helped pull this all together. Check out his website, www.brendanmonte.com for more information. On the next episode, we're going to talk about power, specifically political power. The original Agricultural Adjustment Act survived an intra-party coup that had no answer for entrenched corporate interests who brought it down through the Supreme Court. We're going to go into how FDR used political power early in his administration and made the act not only legal, but the strategic blueprint for the future. <laughs>